0: Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve, and it is great to have you with us. If you haven't experimented with ChatGPT or a similar AI, you really should. It can be pretty amusing and illuminating and useful. But this type of cutting-edge AI is more. It is key to the West's strategic competition with China. To lay out what's at stake, the Special Competitive Studies Project is issuing a new special report, Generative AI, the Future of Innovation Power. Here to discuss it today, Ili Bayraktari, President and CEO of SCSP. Prior to launching this organization, Ili was Executive Director of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, and before that, Chief of Staff to National Security Advisor, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He also held a variety of high-ranking positions in the Department of Defense. Great to have you with us. Thanks
1: for having me, Gene.
0: As mentioned, SCSP is issuing this special report on generative AI. Why?
1: So Gene, most of us on the SCSP team has been involved in issues related to artificial intelligence and national security for the last couple of years. You know that we were part of the National Security Commission on AI. And so everything we saw in this space uh, for the last couple of years was really something that we thought is so important and vital for the future of our country um, that we, and then we wrote, you know, you remember that we produced the AI commissions report, submitted to Congress. Last year we submitted another major report called Mid-Decade Challenges. But what has happened since the last September is that the release of these powerful large language models and the AI now has become a dominant feature among mainstream people, normal people, students, academia, people that see the power of this technology and the power that it holds for the future of our economy and our society. So we thought as a technology-centered national security group, it is upon us to really provide a comprehensive, clear-eyed view of what this technology is and what are the implications for the future of power. And that includes the economic power, the cultural influence power, and ultimately the military power. So that was the purpose of the report we're releasing uh, in September.
0: Did you put this out in part because there seems to be a failure to recognize in some corners the criticality of this development of generative AI? When you look at the
1: national discourse or even international discourse around this technology, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety, rightfully so. This is a new technology. If you look historically, You know, ahead of any new major technology releases or adaptation, societies were anxious. Uh, you know, whether it was electricity, steam engine, you can see communities of people really fighting back against the adoption of these technologies. I think we're at the, we are at the similar junction this time around. There's a lot of anxiety about AI, but also there's a lot of promise. And I think what we wanted to do is really capture that sentiment, both for good and bad. We wanted to capture what are some of the concerns and risks associated with this technology, but also not to undermine the, the hope, because ultimately, most of the major technological breakthroughs from steam engine to electricity um, you know, you know, accelerated our societies for the better, you know, created new jobs, created new opportunities, advanced our societies and humanity to the, to the next stage. So I believe AI holds both the good and the bad. And I think it was upon us to really present that comprehensive, holistic pictures and why Washington really has to lead. Because when you look at, you know, Americans um, anywhere in, in, our, in our country, they're anxious. Uh, they want to see what this means for them for their daily life. And I think Washington it's, needs to lead here. I think Washington needs to lead the international efforts because ultimately our allies and partners are looking at us. What are we going to do with this technology? How are we going to govern this technology? And how are we going to create an international framework around this technology? You you mentioned at the beginning, our main competitor in this space is China. China has a different model how they want to build, adopt, and use this technology. So we need to lead by example. And I think that was the purpose of this report, really provide a comprehensive vision, a positive vision that also underscores what are some of the key you know, risk that we have to consider as we adopt this technology.
0: The title of the report is Generative AI, the Future of Innovation Power. What do you mean by innovation power? Why is it important?
1: So we were inspired by the piece that Eric Schmidt published in the Foreign Affairs um, earlier in the spring called the Innovation Power, in which he argues that the nations that will stay ahead are the nations that are able to create and foster that ecosystem where companies, private sector, academia, and government continue to uh, innovate and continue to build the next generation technologies. So he argues that this is not about soft power or hard power anymore. This is about innovation power. And I think we agree. I think the future of power really relies on the country or countries that will be able to uh, accelerate innovation. And I think AI presents that generative purpose technology uh, that can help societies and countries accelerate that innovation. And so in this report, uh, we provide so like two overarching principles to what we need to do. Number one is we need to treat generative AI as a national security issue. This is so important for our country. And if you look at back at the historical examples, uh, nuclear weapons, electricity, they were all so important that Washington put all the way behind these kind of technologies and provided a vision. So because this is a national security issue also in terms of how we compete against China, we argue that the number one principle should be how do we create, treat this technology as a national security issue? The second principle is we have to admit that we are in a platforms competition against China. When you look at the remarkable progress that China has had in recent years, in building and deploying technologies around the world, you see that this is a different competitor. This is a full-spectrum competitor. During the Cold War, Soviet Union was only a competitor in the security space. China, again, is a full-spectrum competitor. If you look at the advantages they have made in drones, in hypersonic testing, in advanced networks, you see that they have built and they have deployed globally a remarkable set of technologies. And so we have to admit that we are in this platforms competition against China. If you look at the world map and the 5G deployment across the world, most of the map looks red because most of the world ended up using the Chinese Huawei 5G alternative. And so we have argued last year and we argue now that in order for us to continue and excel, you know, the economic prosperity and to ensure our national security interests are advanced throughout the world, we need to engage more actively in these battles, uh, in the platform's battles, uh, because we face a serious competitor in this space.
0: At the moment, the US has the lead in generative AI. I guess you're arguing we shouldn't be uh, resting on our laurels here.
1: Uh, true. I mean, as we argue in the in the report we're publishing, is that most of the platforms that have released front large language models, the frontier large language models, are United States platforms. Uh, there's a there's another platform coming out of UAE that is really remarkable. Other countries are also releasing uh, different models, but when you look at all the ingredients that one country has in one place. To be a serious competitor in this space is China. They have the top down leadership. They have provided enormous resources in this space. Um, they have enormous, uh, they have a huge talent, uh, although constrained talent because they cannot utilize fully their talent, but only one country is a serious competitor in this space. Um, they have a couple of disadvantages also in this space because, you know, Mandarin is not. Uh, a language that is predominant on the internet. Only I think 2% of the internet is in Mandarin language, uh, whether 60% is in English. And so, as you know, these large language models rely on data, rely on the text as an input. And so I think we are in advantage, but that's not going to prohibit China from, uh, building language, uh, models that are in English. And I think, for example, uh, their ability to access maybe the TikTok, uh, data. Uh, could provide them with some advantages in the space and to overcome the language barriers. But China uh, holistically is a serious competitor given the organizational principles, the money they have dedicated to this issue, the companies that they have at the forefront of this issue, and obviously people.
0: Do you argue that there has to be more and better public, private, and academic coordination and cooperation in this sphere?
1: So, Gene, we have argued now for many years that what we need is a new model of public-private partnership and why we have argued this. When you look historically, after the Cold War, most of the innovation came from government labs, from DARPA, from the Lincoln Lab, from all the national labs that we have, either in DOD or DOE, Department of Energy and Department of Defense. After the Cold War, because we have decreased the funding for basic R&D, most of the innovation ecosystem moved to the private sector. Therefore, now you have the emergence of these massive tech companies that have, you know, or they're producing the latest and greatest when it comes to these platforms. In 2016, 17, and onwards, we see an emergence of a serious competitor, China. And their model is something we have written about it and others have written about it. It's called CivMil Fusion, where they have combined their two ecosystems in one under one command and control leadership where their private sector companies really work hand in hand with the government we don't have that we will never have that because this is this is a democratic country in this country private sector can pick and choose whoever they want to work with however we have to have a different public private partnership in this country because if the innovation and all these models are happening in private sector how do we ensure and this is one of the one of the key Uh, recommendations we have is how do we ensure that the government really adopts these capabilities and the government leads by adoption? First, for the internal mission purpose uh, roles that they have, all of them, the departments and agencies, and secondly, really providing that vision for the American people.
0: So you do include in this report action memos. I'd love to talk about each one of them and what they include. The first one is to the U.S. President and Congress.
1: So, Gene, I believe what what we're gonna see in the fall, uh, leading up to maybe early winter, is really a lot of activity in Washington um, in order for us to find the American way or the American voice in how we govern this kind of a powerful this powerful technology in AI. You have the Schumer effort on the Senate side, the White House is working to release executive order on AI. What we thought is we really wanted to provide our are assistance in this in this conversation or in this national discourse. So the best way to do that we thought was to provide six memos to the executive branch and Congress in a way in ways that they can treat AI for the purposes of economic prosperity, for the purposes of the future of innovation, for the purposes of military operation, intelligence mission. So all six of these memos are directed for a specific audience, for a specific mission and for, uh, you know, as an aid for Congress and the White House as they are developing these policies this fall and early winter. And so I think they're really holistic memos and they can add additional benefit to the conversations that are happening now in Washington and among other capitals uh, regarding generative AI.
0: You also have a memo directed to the Secretary of State. What are you telling him to do?
1: So, Gene, that's a really good question. Um, Department of State is at the forefront of, uh, you know, leading our foreign policy uh, agenda and really bringing in our allies and partners, you know, to better coordinate our policies and efforts. So in this space, we argue that the Department of State should do uh, the platform strategy. What, do, what does that entail? Two things. Number one is leading in this space, leading by convening, leading by bringing other countries to include the Global South countries uh, to really understand the impact of this technology, uh, that uh, we should that the technology should be at the forefront of our diplomatic efforts. As you know, technology has not been uh, you know one of the things that every diplomat thinks when they go around the world to advance our national security interest. And so we argue that technology is that is where the competition is happening now, and all our diplomats should use this to transform the diplomatic efforts and use it in international forums, multilateral forums, and in our bilateral engagements. So that's the first piece we argue uh, of our foreign policy memo for the secretary of state. The second is really how does the department of state adopt faster, these kind of technologies first for their internal purposes, uh, because this is a huge promise that can help many individuals at the department of state really streamline their workspace and workload. And so We have argued now for many, many time for many, many years, that the Department of State should really adopt faster this kind of a technology for you know back office responsibilities, writing of memos. Everybody is using these capabilities now from writing thank you letters all the way to long memos. So why shouldn't our diplomat be equipped with this technology? And in order to do that, you need the right infrastructure, the right, you know, reskilling of labor and people that you have. And also, what are the right and left limits in terms of privacy when you use these kind of capabilities inside any of the
0: department to include Department of State? You've already mentioned the national security implications of this technology. You also include a memo here for the Secretary of Defense. What are you saying?
1: So it's not that the Department of Defense is starting from scratch in terms of you know conversations around AI or how they're organized about this. Um, you know, our focus with the AI Commission, even last year with the report, has been really to help the Pentagon and our you know military men and women in uniform really understand the importance of AI and how they adopt faster. And the Department has done a really you know a tremendous job in you know organizational piece of this side. Uh, I think adoption needs to be accelerated even more. So what we argue is that generative AI gives them a new momentum. It gives them a new momentum because, according to us, there are four areas. That DOD can benefit from generative AI. Number one is it would enable decisional advantages. What do we mean by that? Uh, all these capabilities, large language models, gives you more options. They give you more ideas. If you thought about three ideas, generative AI will give you two more additional ideas you never thought about it. So we can use these things, you know, to enable the decisional advantage inside the Department of Defense. The second area that I think the Department of Defense will benefit is it would help in, enhance our operations. And there are several categories here, logistics and sustainment, investment and divestment choices and decisions. You can experiment with actions. Um, you can see, are we deploying globally our forces in a, in a, in a smart way? Um, you know, Especially as we decide which are the high risk areas, which are the low risk areas. And so I think it would help in really giving us more options and enhancing our operations in the building. The third element that I think the large language models can help our our Department of Defense would be in developing talent. Much like generative AI will impact labor productivity, these will create new occupations inside the Department of Defense. And so the Department of Defense needs to put in place policies that recruit, develop, and retain talent that can develop mission-driven requirements for how we evaluate, build, and how we employ AI tools for military effects. All young people will join the military now with some kind of skills in this area. Our Department of Defense should be able to benefit from this. And then the last is really identifying new defense capabilities. Um, As you know, next year, and this is one of the areas that is really sensitive, we have massive elections, not just in the United States, but most of the democratic world will go through elections. We have elections. European Union has elections, uh, India has elections. I believe more than one point some billion people will hit the polls in twenty twenty four. Disinformation, deep fakes, all these new tools will be used and misused for the campaign. And so how are we postured from a defensive perspective? You know, both domestically and internationally to, to go through this really sensitive time in our history. I think the Department of Defense can help here because their role and mission in terms of how they defend uh, our national interest is critical in this space. And so those would be like the four areas that we recommend
0: in this memo, the Department of Defense will focus on with generative AI. Director of National Intelligence, there's a memo for her too. What's in there?
1: Thanks, Gene. We really argue that the large language models present a transformative moment for the intelligence community we believe that the intelligence community was early on to recognize the potential of AI. They have launched several pilot projects, uh, but despite these efforts, there's an urgent need, I think now to focus on generative AI uh, because of the speed of evolution this technology is uh, is evolving. And so in that space, we argue we have to do like uh, in the immediate term, four actions. Number one is uh, start experimenting with generative AI tools right away. I think the longer we prolong this, the, the, the risk of our ICs, you know, staying behind is, is high. Uh, I know, um, our bureaucracy and our intelligence community has hesitations to use technologies right off the shelf, but I think generative AI, uh, the sooner they stop adopting, playing with it, see how they can build it for their mission, I think the better. The second is, uh, they have to become an agile adopter, uh, in meaning that You know, this is one of those things that the more you, you play it, the more you use it, the better you can become. The third piece is really one of the main concerns we have in this space when you think about the intelligence community's use of these kind of tools is the privacy concerns. I think these are some of the concerns that Hill has or Congress has, but I also know that this is at the forefront of our intelligence community leaders. So, you know, this new, this is a new area for all of us. And so we argue that the intelligence community need to address these privacy concerns up front. And then the last thing is really, there shouldn't be just one intelligence community agency playing with generative AI or using generative AI. Because this is is such a widespread technology, we argue that we need an IC-wide solutions wherever they're possible. And that entails digital infrastructure, the right people, and the right platforms.
0: What are the consequences if the US doesn't respond as you suggest, organize for this, start using it, um, accelerate innovation and coordination with the private sector? So Gene, we
1: have argued last year and we continue to argue that any nation that fails to adopt this kind of a technology that is general purpose in nature will not be able to modernize its economy, to advance societal benefits of this technology and ultimately it will fail behind the national security mission. We have seen this throughout our history. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, whether it was electricity or steam engine or nuclear weapons, anytime these technologies were were introduced to society, you know, Washington led. We took charge, we provided the infrastructure, we provided the the guiding principles, we built, you know the electrification, we build the nuclear weapons. This is that time of history. This is the once in a generation technology that will leap us forward. But also we have to do it in in a careful and a balanced way. And I think that is what we have argued that it is now for Washington to lead. It is now time for our country to lead the world. And I think we can do it. We provide six memos, as you mentioned, for six different cabinet members. Um, an overarching picture that I think provides the right message on how and why. And, um, and, uh, and I'm really an optimist that we can, we can take this moment. We can seize this moment and take our country and our society forward.
0: Is it really a moment? I'm just wondering if there is any end point to this competitive situation that we're in. Well, I think there are two things happening at the same
1: time, Gene. Number one is when you, when you look at previous examples of tech, this technology, and you know, in our report, we argue the first PC was introduced in 1981. Uh, Mac came out with their famous Apple Mac in 1984. It took 10 years, uh, for 100 million PCs to be sold. It took three months, I think, or six months for OpenAI to get to 100 million users. So the speed and scale and diffusion of this kind of a technology is completely different today just because of how many people have access to internet, how many p- people have a- access to devices. And so that is what's happening on one, one side. On the other end, you know, this technology is not happening in isolation. It's happening at the time when we're facing probably a generational competitor. So when you put these two elements together, the technology that is so powerful, that is so scalable um, and massive. And and, and on the other hand, you have a competitor like China that is really a technology competitor, uh, first and foremost. I think this is a historical opportunity and transformative moment. And I think how we position ourselves today, the policies we drive today and we implement today will matter for many, many years to come on how we use this technology but how we are also positioned globally against China.
0: Ili Bayraktari, President and CEO of the Special Competitive Studies Project. Thanks a lot for joining us to talk about the new report, Generative AI, the Future of Innovation Power. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Jean. I'm Jean Mazur. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope you will again. In the meantime, take care.